I'm romancing the stone. Is tap and geek out with your host Doug Lund and Eric G. Hollis. <laughs> Getting a thumbs up from Eric because I didn't even think I'd make it that far through the intro. Uh, That's what no- the thumbs up was for. I was like, holy shit, dude. Seven words? Fuck yes, dude. Let's do this. <laughs> Eric, it's been eight episodes since I've been able to ask you, what the fuck are you drinking? Well, Doug, I am drinking a Stone Brewery Tangerine Express IPA. It's an India pale ale with tangerine and pineapple, 6.7 alcohol volume, but a really good beer. Now, a lot of the fruitier IPAs that I drink steer more towards the fruit. Considering this has tangerine and pineapple in it, it has a lot of hop. What you look for in an IPA, still a very good beer. I picked this beer, not that I normally drink IPAs, but I picked it based on segment we've got coming up a little bit later in the show but i can give this a solid 3.75 i had it last week i'm having it again today and it's a really really solid beer eric raiding the stone (laughs) (laughs) how long were you were you holding that in or did that just come out right now just the last couple of seconds there okay good that was really funny what are you drinking doug well interestingly enough uh for two reasons i'm also drinking a stone beer This might be the first episode of Tapping Geek Out history where you're drinking an IPA and I am not. Because when I think stone, that is the only thing I think of, the fantastic India Pale Ales. And they may make more IPA variations than any other brewer on the market, right? You would know better than I do. but I could think of close to a dozen off the top of my head. And they've constantly got a new one in rotation and, and one of their fresh hopped beers that's only good for like 30 to 60 days. The one I chose today because I thought it fit with the theme, I think that's pronounced Chocoveza, X-O-C-O-V-E-Z-A. My Spanish is a little rusty, but I think that's how you pronounce it. It's an imperial stout inspired by Mexican hot chocolate. And this is a pretty stout stout at 8.1% ABV. And it says down here at the bottom, the stout brewed with chocolate, coffee, pasilla peppers, vanilla cinnamon and nutmeg and given that description you pretty much know what to expect and this beer does taste like a peppery hot chocolate not in a bad way because i think you and i have both had those kinds of beers before this one and i got to give all the credit to stone they pulled it off and i know this is probably outside of their wheelhouse but it works it's not something you can drink a a lot of because it's so damn rich Um, not particularly sweet but an 8.1 that's going to knock you on your ass I think I'm also going to go with a 3.75. Definitely something that I would recommend for stout lovers. Definitely something I would recommend for stone fans who want to try something a a little different. But I actually like this beer a lot more than I was expecting to. Sounds delicious. And when we say stone out here, guys, in Colorado, we mean stone brewing, not Keystone. I would hope that any of our listeners would be savvy. I only bring that up because you know how Facebook generates ads? I got an ad for Keystone Light the other day, and I was like, wow, your algorithms are really (laughs) not on. Because normally it's like video game shit, skateboarding shit, clothes I've bought before, rap, Adidas. You know, it's pretty spot on, dude. They know how to market to me. But then you see Keystone Light. You're like, yeah, they probably haven't done much research into what beer Eric drinks. Of course, my phone's sitting next to me right now. So they're listening to all this and they're like, oh, yeah, no, no, no more Keystone Light ads. (laughs) He likes the good stuff. (laughs) Or they're going to double down and that's all you're going to get. Isn't it crazy that we live in a world where we have to worry about all of the devices around us listening to us and how they're going to use that information to try and and, and shape our buying decisions? When I see a T-shirt that is half Kansas City Chiefs and half New York Yankees. 
like in a heart, you have to wonder like who the fuck is that marketed to except me? Like I'm sure there's other Chiefs and Yankees fans. There's millions of people in the world, but come uh, on. Or like for you, they had a Dallas Cowboys avalanche shirt. <laughs> I could get one for Nikki too. Now I want one of those. <laughs> well, you you have your phone next to you, right? You're going to be getting an ad for it in about 20, 30 minutes. Oh, that's true. Well, we're digressing a little bit. The reason Eric and I both chose stone beers is because uh, we decided to return to the mic today with a segment that's quickly, I think, becoming one of our favorites to do. And it's the wrinkly sack where we get to talk about old movies. And the stone beers were appropriate, we thought, because the movie we chose was the Michael Douglas Kathleen Turner vehicle Romancing the Stone from 1984. This was your pick. And I think we have to start distinguishing that. Not as a good or a bad thing, just this movie came out when you and I both lived in El Paso, Texas. That's right. I want to say we have watched this movie together. If not, we watched it around the same time. I think maybe you watched it with your folks and I watched it with my folks. I want to say I didn't see this in the theater, but I saw this on pay-per-view. I definitely didn't see it in the theater. And and you're right. I'd be shocked if we hadn't seen it together because this is in the era of our lives where uh, most things that we watched, if it wasn't on TV, it was on VHS. We had a decent VHS collection, but not stuff that was either age appropriate for me at, what, eight when this movie came out or probably nine or ten when I started watching it frequently. But it was one of like a half dozen movies that I could actually watch and enjoy. So this one landed in my rotation early and I must have watched it three or four dozen times in the first five years after its release. So you're right. I think we probably caught it together in El Paso at some point. I haven't seen it since El Paso, where this movie went on with you and you love it. And this is part of your life. I want to say I've seen this movie once, maybe twice when we were kids and then once last week. I'm glad you picked this because that's a good dynamic to work with. This movie is high up on your list. I really enjoyed it. But for some reason, it just didn't stick with me over time like it did with you. And it's by no means a masterpiece. I think it earned its It's a good uh, movie spot in 1984 which we both agree is cinema's best year ever but it was something that was always on the tv in my household like when my sisters and i get together to this day one of us will say they'll cut me they'll hurt me because that's just something that was ingrained in us 30 years ago (laughs) i might bring up some criticisms it's not a bad film interestingly enough the original cut of the movie was a disaster, according to studio heads. No one wanted to release it. So much so that Zemeckis got fired from his next movie, and Robert Zemeckis, famous director, I'm sure everyone's heard of him. Next movie was called Cocoon. That, of course, went to Ron Howard. Zemeckis went back and recut the film. That's the film they ended up releasing. It did gangbusters. It was a huge box office hit, So much so that the studio came back to Zemeckis and told him his next project, he could do whatever he wanted to do. And that's how we get a little movie called Back to the Future. No shit. See, Eric, that's why I love you. It's because of that kind of information that, that you bring to the show. So if there hadn't been some craziness with this movie, then he would have gone on to direct Cocoon and potentially Back to the Future never happens. Was that what you're suggesting? You have to kind of think about it that way. The Back to the Future that we know definitely doesn't happen because that barely happened in the first place. We'll do a whole nother show about that. I don't know if Back to the Future is a good sack movie, though, because that's one of my favorite movies of all time. I've seen it within the last three months. But this movie, Romancing the Stone, interestingly enough, starts off exactly like Back to the Future. The first 15, 20 seconds, I thought it was Back to the Future. I was like, wait a minute. I thought I hit play on Romancing the Stone. You're talking about the cold open with Angelina and Jesse there in the beginning? No, 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 no. Like how the credits come in and the sounds in the background and the musical ah, cue. Ah, okay, okay. No, Back like to the that. Future definitely doesn't open with <laughs> <laughs> and stole my Bible. No, that doesn't happen in uh, in Back to the Future. No, I'm talking about just how the credits come in the very beginning of the movie. And Watch the them side stylized by side. logo and the yes. kind of same uh, guy did the music, Alan Silvestri for both films. 
I guess I can see why those things might end up similar. <laughs> Silvestri, in fact, was hired for Romancing the Stone to do the temporary score. Zemeckis liked the temp score so much, let him do the real score, and then obviously hired him to do Back to the Future after that. All right. I apologize in advance if I'm asking you a question you don't know the answer to, but why would they do a temporary score for a movie? How I understand it, and I haven't taken a film class in a very long time, but you just put temporary music in. Like even when directors edit their own stuff, they put in the soundtrack like that they want, or you just put in a temporary score until things are licensed or the score of the movie has been recorded because obviously the scenes are shot before that. So there's always temp music in there. Like even you read Chandra Sekar's book, right? Yes. He talks about how in Beer Fest they had like Zeppelin and all sorts of crazy shit that they never were able to license. Oh, yeah. I watched this movie through a different lens because I knew we were going to be talking about it. And I, I noticed things, and this is one of the greatest things about cinema in general, noticed things that I had missed so many times before. And I think it was because I was looking at it with a different eye. And the opener, when Kathleen Turner is doing the voiceover, like my first thought was, oh, my God, Kathleen Turner's voice is so fucking sexy. That decision to open with her doing the narration over like a, a cheesy Western scene, in my opinion, was great because it sets the tone and uh, pulls the viewer right in immediately. She has one of the best voices ever. That's the kind of voice I look for when I am looking for someone to date. Not that that's like a deal breaker, but that's a huge plus. Just that sultriness that she has. And the cold open also has something I can't believe I didn't notice as a kid. You get a little white t-shirt nip action in a PG movie. That would not happen today. That's definitely in my notes. If this movie in 1984 is the year that it happened, right? Uh, this yes. came out in March and the succession of events would have been Romancing the Stone comes out in March. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Dune comes out in May, which causes some of the fervor. Gremlin adds to it, and then by August, we get PG-13 on Red Dawn. Did I get that right? You did. Very good. Because you it, think it, that we talked about that sometime before the show. <laughs> <laughs> you get not only nipples through the white t-shirt, but there's a scene where she leans over, and you can see almost a, a full breast. And that does not happen in a PG movie these days. This movie might even be a soft R in 2018. Yeah, there's no F-bombs. No, and I went the looking for The violence is pretty tame. There is a lot of shooting and shooting back. Heavy drug use, a lot of shits. <laughs> Up to my neck. It's <laughs> an ass. I can't even get it out. I could be a plastic surgeon. Right, right. Yeah. In fact, I want to say that's one of the first lines you quoted to me because I know you saw this before I did. And even if it was like a week before. And then maybe after that, we watched it together because I'm pretty sure my mom taped this off a of pay-per-view. You know, Jeannie used to be all over that shit. Oh, yeah. That's how parents kept their kids occupied, right? It's not even something like people even think about anymore because everyone tapes everything. I mean, I don't tape anything. Everything is just available. I hit a button and it streams to my TV. Or like with Romancing the Stone, if I can't find it, I can just get it for $2 or $3. So after that Western scene, which teaches us that Joan Wilder is a novelist, we get to meet her and her cat, Romeo, in her New York apartment. Here's one of my first questions. What kind of an alcoholic has a collection of airplane bottles that they drink out of? <laughs> <laughs> I'm making some wild suggestions here, but this is how it goes in Doug's head. In 1984, there wasn't such thing as a shooter, which is what they call him now. You didn't find that bottle in a liquor store. You only found it on the airplane. And I think the suggestion is, is that she's a, a pretty heavy drinker. Right. But why wouldn't she have like a bottle of Crown, a bottle of vodka at okay. her own house? So if you were she's a, like portioning her liquor, if you were a screenwriter, how did those bottles end up in her house? Lots of airplane trips, <laughs> lots of travel. That was my assumption, too. It was something that they don't ever tie back into like an actual storyline because then immediately after they paint her as a essentially a shut in that never gets out at all in her. She does with her bust editor. out. the uh, No, she gets drunk again, not only with Michael Douglas, but as soon as she gets away in that one sequence, the bridge, she drinks immediately. She does. But right after she gets done writing her novel, she packs it up and she goes off to see her editor, Gloria, portrayed by the, the fantastic Holland Taylor. And 
the editor spends half the time trying to hook her up with something called a Mondo Dismo, which I'm still not even sure what that means, and the other half chastising her for never getting out of her apartment because presumably she sits there writing all the time. Okay, and that is one of the sequences and story beats that was reshot. More of the love angle, which I don't understand because the rest of the movie doesn't really work if that's not there. And maybe that's the movie that they got. Maybe Zemeckis really did have a piece of shit and he turned it into something great. But the angle of her being a shut-in and needing a man, that was part that was reshot, at least based on what I've read. Well, I'm not going to argue with that decision because I love the final product. But whenever I hear about like, oh, my God, you should see what the original cut was like. Well, it just it makes me want to see the original cut. I don't think we're going to get that for this ever. By all accounts, the actor, the director and the studio, the original cut was a a pile of shit. And why would we want to see it at this point other than just to have that reference point? The writer of this film, Diane Thomas, was a waitress. Michael Douglas knew her. He optioned the script from her for $250,000. When it became a hit, she gets a job working with Spielberg. He buys her a Porsche. She gets killed four weeks before Jewel of the Nile comes out in that Porsche with her boyfriend driving and never got to release another screenplay, which is sad because female writers are rare in Hollywood. And this film has a good script. The story works. Did she write Jewel of the Nile before she passed? I don't think she did. You know, I need to look that up, but I assume because she was working with Spielberg that she did not. There's a third one, too, that they there, never made. because There's Jewel a third the, Romancing the Stone movie? There's not one that you haven't seen. There's one that they never made. No shit. Yeah, and if you give me a second, because I'm really shitty here, I can I'm tell not. you what the name of it was. It's the Crimson Eagle, because I'm faster than you. Uh, <laughs> well, maybe you should know your trivia about one of your favorite movies, fuckhead. I just didn't have the Crimson Eagle memorized. My bad. That's absolutely a movie that... We should probably be happy that it wasn't made. Getting back to the story, we're quickly introduced to Joan's sister, Elaine, played by, would you call her an 80s staple, Mary Ellen Trainer? Oh, yeah. She's the psychiatrist from Lethal Weapon. She's the newscaster in Die Hard. Those are the two I really know her from. She was the mom in Goonies. And Oh, yeah, she was. Yeah, with the broken arm. And she was in a movie that was also in a wrinkly sack, which hasn't reached the light of day yet. Action Jackson. <laughs> we didn't release that. No, we didn't. Okay. It, it I, hasn't gone up. No, it's, it's cool. We, we, we get to meet her and the kidnappers. Ira played by Zach Norman, who for some reason I had it stuck in my head that he was the guy that played Bernie and weekend at Bernie's. And I know I'm going to take shit from you for saying that. And Ralph played by Danny DeVito. His okay. cousin. DeVito out of this cast is Arguably the biggest actor, correct? I'd even put him above Michael Douglas at this point. I don't know. I guess that one's close. DeVito's a lot more iconic as an actor. Douglas is great, don't get me wrong, and he's like a Hollywood legend, but DeVito was really a nobody. Not before this got made. He had had some parts, but I would say that this is DeVito's big break. Douglas and him were actually roommates in New York City. Douglas got a break before DeVito did. They still continued to live together. As soon as this movie came available and Douglas optioned the script, he gave this part to Danny DeVito. And DeVito still to this day says that this was one of his biggest breaks in the industry. I mean, Danny DeVito was huge in the 80s. And he would come back for Jewel of the Nile and also teaming up with them again in The War of the Roses. I never knew that they actually lived together. Can you picture like Michael Douglas and Danny DeVito in their 20s hanging out? I want to see that movie. (laughs) I hope it's like Danny DeVito and Charlie hanging out on Always Sunny in Philadelphia living together. That's that's the only thing I can picture living with DeVito is like, (laughs) I bet Danny DeVito is a cool dude. I bet he is, too. And that probably means that Michael Douglas is a cool dude, too, especially if he's throwing his bro a bone there and bringing him into the industry that way. That's pretty cool. God, I love trivia. It makes almost any movie that you can find information about worth watching, in my opinion. I almost like digging into the films more than I like watching the films themselves sometimes. And this is one of those cases. This movie held up extremely well, considering of how much of a cynical dickhole I am at age 42. I'll tell you that much right now, because you know me, man. I poke holes in everything. And plus to bring good material to the cast, I hope. 
it's not a bad flick at all. I would watch it again. In fact, I'd watch it with you. I'd like to see your perspective. We do commentary on it. It's always been my opinion that it holds up well just because its composition is... I mean, it's pretty basic, but it's well acted. It's got some solid talent in it from direction to production to the actors. You can't point at one individual and say, that's a weak link. Maybe the guy that plays Ira, and maybe if they would have given him more than one line, it would have been different. But you can only hear, Ralph, look at those snappers so many times before you're like, all right, guy, we get it. You, you like the fucking alligators. And the alligators in the first act of the movie are just like the famous gun. If you show a gun in the first act, it has to go off in the third. As soon as you see those alligators, you're like, okay, somebody's going to get fed or bitten by the alligator. And because I've been playing a lot of Red Dead Redemption lately, that actually fit in well with my life. So I was happy to see the alligator carnage. Apparently, they keep a lot of fucking alligators on hand in Colombia because they're fucking everywhere they go. Yeah, because in fact, I think the alligators in the beginning aren't the same alligators in the end, are they? No, because Ira's got some hanging around him wherever he is. But they are in that fort in Cartagena at the end, and they just happen to have some hanging out underneath the fort as well for whatever fucking reason. After that, though, she gets misrouted on a bus, and we get a great hero's introduction from Michael Douglas, who has a shotgun with unlimited shells. (laughs) I mean, he's got the cheat code fucking on. He does a leaping shotgun blast towards a guy hiding behind a bus and you know mad props for that and doug this is one of the things i want to ask you about what was the whole deal he was importing birds that he was going to sell and that's why he ended up there that day and he had his jeep blocking the bus that's one part that confused me jack colton is in Colombia to catch these birds so that he can sell them to probably American buyers because who else would pay $2,000 for a big fucking blue chicken? But he's parked on the side of the road in a position that's not even really blocking it. Joan Wilder is the reason the fucking bus crashed because she's talking to the driver and he's turning around. Is this bus going to Cartagena? Okay. Is this the bus to Cartagena? Because When white people talk louder, it makes them instantly understandable to people of (laughs) different nationalities. So the bus has kind of veered off then and hit the truck that's got all of Jack Colton's birds on it. He's just like the middleman for these birds. Okay. Anyway, he takes care (laughs) of Carmen Sandiego. I watched this with Connor and he noticed the same thing. He's like, there's no way that that gun holds that many shells. It's something that I wish movies would address, but when you watch any movie, so this is not Romancing the Stones' fault, but when you watch any movie, especially from this era, there is no concept of how a gun works. And I'm not a gun guy, but I've played enough Call of Duty to know how many shots certain things have in them, and I know a shotgun does not work like that. When Connor pointed it out, and again, I knew we were going to cast about it, here's how the story goes in my head. In the beginning of the movie, when we see Jesse show up on his horse, on the cliff, like up high, pulls out a shotgun, boom, 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 blows away all of Grogan's brothers. He does the same thing. He uses more ammo than the gun could possibly have. Maybe we're seeing it from Joan Wilder's perspective when he shows up and it's an exaggerated version of what actually happened because it's beat for beat what happened at the beginning. And that's how you know, oh, okay, here's her Jesse. It's one of my favorite things in this movie. They take what you expect to be this hero And they immediately show you, nope, men like that don't exist. The late Stan Lee would give you a no prize for that explanation. That's perfect. All you have to tell me is Joan Wilder's point of view. Done. I forgive the shotgun. If I'm looking at this from a romance, well, let's give her genre uh, a little more clarity. She's like a action romance novelist because all of her characters have that high conflict where there's murder and villains and that kind of drama instead of, I don't know, what's typically in a a romance novel? Or is that typically what's in a romance novel? I'm not trying to sound hip here. I've never read anything like that in my life. I don't know much about romance novelists. I do know, though, that a novelist should know what uh, leche de madre means in Spanish because I knew that in second grade. (laughs) That's my biggest criticism of the whole movie. I was like, okay, before this, she was a shitty alcoholic that had airplane bottles. But Joan Wilder's a pretty respectable character. She's a successful writer. She's never been on an adventure before, and she's doing the best that she can. 
stranger in a strange world. She lost all of her shit. She's hanging out with a dude she doesn't know. But then she's like, Leche de Madre, what's that mean? And I'm like, wait a minute, you're a writer. I know that. And a I'm writer, not a writer. <laughs> who is intimately familiar of the role of damsel in distress, who may just be plain dumb to let her leading man drop that knowledge on her. I don't know. I mean, it, it's Dude, another you one of those. Love this movie. I I do. You, you you will not you will not let me find fault here. You explained away the airplane bottles. You explained away. I'm filling in the blanks with my imagination, and it's only possible because I've seen this movie so, so many fucking times. And I will. I'll rationalize it and justify it all goddamn day. I'll defend it. It's my bias. <laughs> That's why you're here, though, and you are raising rational points. It does raise a fucking eyebrow. It took me out of it for a second. It didn't change the fact that I, I still think the screenplay is solid. I don't want to skip ahead on the story, but the ending is great. Not similar to Back to the Future, but also that kind of ending that you don't see coming, maybe. So we get the introduction and then probably the best 20 minutes of dialogue right after they meet. As they realize yeah. uh, that they need each other, he's establishing his character and she's establishing her I don't want to say neediness, but she needed him to get out of there. The banter back and forth between them is really what makes the movie. There's two amazing scenes in the movie. Tons that are great, but two that are amazing. And number one is the scene that I think we're about to get to that's in the airplane. In the back of the airplane where they've got the fire with the weed and they're getting drunk together and they're talking to each other. That's probably my favorite scene in the entire film. There's some good buildup before that where he's teaching her this is the kind of shoes that you're going to need and you need to get rid of this and throws all her shit away. She discovers she's got a little bit more metal in her by trying to cross a bridge that he tells her don't even try and cross it because it's dangerous. Well, she ignores him, does it anyways, ends up swinging across this gigantic gorge to the other side, drops onto her ass and makes the, <laughs> the funniest noise that I think a person can make. And at that point, he's like... Wait, who do I have on my hands here? She does two ass drops in the movie. (laughs) Kathleen Turner must have patented that move because the first one I thought was cute and adorable. And when she did it the second time, I was like, oh, that's her trick. That's her Ollie Trey flip. That's that's (laughs) what Kathleen Turner did. Like she fell on her ass from the hotel, right? And she makes the same noise. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So that's her thing. I was going to ask you about the movie poster. How many times has that poster been done? Because this movie got accused of being a Raiders of the Lost Ark ripoff. However, the script was written three years before Raiders was. Is that right? Yes. So you can make all the comparisons you want. And honestly, Raiders did come out before this. So obviously Zemeckis saw it. You know, him and Spielberg are buds. So I'm sure he took some influence there. But yeah, this movie got some shit for being a Raiders ripoff. And when you look at the posters side by side, eh, you can kind of see where they're coming from. But when I saw the poster for this film, I was like, ah, you don't see posters like that anymore. You see the shitty photoshopped floating heads poster style. You don't see something that really kind of embraces the adventure. So I liked it, even though it's been done 100 times. I think it's cool. It has, and I have to think that was to ensure that they got the male audience because another area where I think this movie shines is that it appeals equally to both male and female audiences. Ultimately, it's a romance novel done in a movie form, but that description doesn't get male butts in seats. So you build a poster around an Indiana Jones. No, I'm sorry. It wasn't called Indiana Jones back then. It was just called Raiders of the fucking Lost Ark. Let's remember Don't let the revisionist rewrite history like they did with Star Wars. It's not fucking called A New Hope. (laughs) I don't care what people say. Raiders is still the best Indiana Jones movie. Easily. Great movie. And you know what? If they took inspiration for that or if they wanted to use that as something to emulate, why not? Where's the fucking fault in that? Give me another Raiders movie because I'll tell you what. When these two movies come out in 1984, what was the Indiana Jones movie that we got then? Temple of Doom. Yeah, I rewatched Temple of Doom, and it's all right, but I prefer Romancing the Stone. And I know that that's my bias, but I don't think Temple of Doom is a great movie. I mean, it's an Indiana Jones movie, so I love it to death. But next to The Crystal Skull, it's the worst indie movie for a lot of reasons. It holds a very special place in my heart, like Romancing the Stone does for you. 
I haven't watched it though in a long time. And it's one of those I'm afraid to. I'm scared. I want to remember Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom like I remember it right now. I'll go back and watch Raiders. You're afraid it will sully your memory? Even The Goonies, I went back and watched that. And I was like, okay, this is good. But there's a lot of shit that I was like, eh, problems with the acting, problems with a lot of things. And I don't want to watch it with my sullied view of the world now. All right. Well, so getting back to the story, they've bond a little bit. They've proven themselves to each other a little bit. And uh, they're making their way, having escaped from the cops through the Colombian wilderness, hacking their way through the jungle through a machete. And they come across the airplane, the downed drug running craft. Which brings us to the best scene in the movie and my favorite line in the movie. God damn it, man. The Doobie Brothers broke up. That was my favorite part is he picks up a copy of Rolling Stone with Elvis Costello on the cover and opens it up. And that's one of the first (laughs) things he says. And I laugh my ass off because that's a joke I did not get at all when we were kids. But I totally understand that now. What's so great about it is that uh, she's mid-sentence. She's trying to have a meaningful conversation with him. This is when she's starting to kind of open up her kimono a little bit and like, maybe I can trust this guy. And what does he do? Because he's high as fuck at that point. God damn it. The Doobie Brothers broke up. Shit. When did that happen? (laughs) (laughs) That's when I kind of got on board this third viewing. As soon as that happened, I was like, okay, I'm in. I'm completely in with this character. I get exactly where he's coming from. It's the best scene in the whole movie, though. What do you call that scene in the movie where it's the fulcrum? You have to get to this moment, the linchpin, and then now we know that they're a team because clearly they found some common ground, a a bond. She shares why she's really in Colombia, and it's a treasure map, and we're actually a lot further than I thought. I checked the time in the movie and it's like almost an hour in before the treasure hunt starts, which is why we're all here to begin with. Wow. The plane is an hour in almost. Yeah. It's like 50 something minutes. If I were to guess right now, I would have said that that's within the first 25 minutes. That tells you that they're still doing good story buildup in the beginning. There's a lot of, what do you call it? Is it exposition? Yeah, there is, but it's not ham fisted. You're along for this ride. And you get a scene that's very similar to the Goonies before this with the mudslide. Yeah, that's right after they meet. Kathleen Turner's stunt double, also the stunt double for Linda Carter on Wonder Woman. Ooh, that's some more good trivia. And they have similar body types. And I think I might have been more in love with Linda Carter than I was with Kathleen Turner. But they have both joined the Hall of Fame from Teenage Doug Spank Bank for sure. But in today, Doug Spank Bank, Linda Carter, still ace in the hole. We just saw her in Super Troopers 2. Kathleen hasn't mm, not held so on much. as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Nikki and I were talking about that. Like, what happened to her? And of course, Nikki being the healthcare professional, you know, immediately does some research and finds out that she has uh, rheumatoid arthritis and was on heavy steroid treatment for years and years. And that is exactly what is responsible for her difference in appearance from when she shows up in later properties. The last thing I saw her in where she was regular Kathleen Turner, I want to say it was V.I. Wachowski, which came out in 92 or 93. I have no idea what you're talking about. It's a great flick. Very underrated. Angel Goenthal's from Home Alone and uh, The Rise of Leslie Vernon is in it. Check it out if you're a Kathleen Turner fan. Where the fuck did that come from is the question I'm going to ask my therapist. That's what seriously fucking keeps me up at night, Doug. (laughs) I haven't thought about that movie, dude, since 1992. But as soon as we get into talking and shit like that, all of a sudden, pop. V.I. Wachowski. Wachowski, like W-A-S-H-A-W-S-K-I, maybe. Look it up. Joan Wilder's voice is lighter than Kathleen Turner's normal voice, and she has her normal voice in VI. Like her pussy willow. Yes. (laughs) Oh, God. Say that again. (laughs) Pussy willow. That's one of my favorite lines in any movie of all time. And that's not a great movie, but it's entertaining as hell. She's great in that, too. I had a great transition back into the village Second best scene in the movie. They're now looking for, I guess, a telephone and a photocopier now that Colton 
has discovered she's got this treasure map and they happen into a little village in the middle of Colombia where the story takes a very unexpected turn. It takes the best turn, in my opinion. It's my second favorite scene and only because the plane scene is so good for the characters. But they end up in some shit. Supposedly every little town in Colombia, everybody's armed and wants to rob you. That's the impression I got (laughs) of at least where they were in this mob of people basically corners them to a door. I guess Michael Douglas knows that whoever lives there owns a car. They're trying to get a car to get out of there, correct? Yeah, they ask the townsfolk. Who has a car? And they say, Juan, the bell make. Right. And then they end up at Juan's house. Juan has no interest in helping them until it is revealed that Joan Wilder is there. And all of a sudden, Juan turns from the biggest badass to the biggest fanboy ever. Again, besides the plane scene, my favorite part of the whole movie, because he's like, oh, my God, it, it would be like if Stan Lee showed up at my house and I didn't know who he was and didn't invite him in. And then I figure out who he is. And then all of a sudden I want to drink with him. I want to ask him questions. Everything is mine. Hell, Juan is the reason that they escape. The John Wilder? The novelist? <laughs> and he's got all her books. And it's such a good tribute to fandom. A fan will save your ass, man. You know, there's some creepers out there, dude, but it's your time of need. Someone that uh, is a fan of yours, they've got your back. And her editor, Gloria, sets it up in the beginning when she's talking about going to Colombia to meet Elaine. She said, your books do very well in South America. I did not put that together. Thank you. Of course, Juan, portrayed by Alfonso Aro, whom we all know and love as El Wapo in The Three Amigos. Didn't put that together either. Oh my Thank God, you. really? I no. That shocks me. And see, where does this dumbness come from? There's question number two. <laughs> <laughs> because I should definitely have known that. But God, Three Amigos is another one, dude. Since the next sack pick is mine, that might be it. And this is where my major gripe of the movie comes in because they're having a really fun conversation. Uh, We discover that he's actually very wealthy because he's a drug runner and he's got a truck, which the way that they played the story, I have to blame it on editing because they go from, oh, I don't have a car to, oh, yeah, he does have a car, but it's actually a four wheel drive Bronco and they're all in it and they're busting through the garage. They're not even opening the garage door. Somehow they know (laughs) <laughs> that the this army's was my, outside. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought this up because this is my biggest problem in the movie. In fact, I thought my internet skipped. I was like, what the fuck? As you see the police start coming up, right. they're in the middle of just a normal conversation. There's no shot of Michael Douglas or Kathleen Turner running to the window. <laughs> like Nothing. And, yeah, and for that reason, what could have been the best joke in the movie doesn't work. It doesn't land. I watched it three times and I was like, Ugh. it sucks when you see a joke that's really good that you could have cleaned up a little bit. And I say this, anyone that listening, I'm not a writer. I never made a fucking movie. I've never done shit with my life. So I am nothing but a critic at this point. But that scene could have been fixed. Yeah, we have to blame the editors there. And maybe there's a good reason it happened. As someone who does a lot of editing myself, sometimes you do the best with what you have to work with. Fortunately, the story after that progresses uh, pretty smoothly from there, although this is another thing that Connor picked up on, and I love that he watched it with Nikki and I, and I love that he loved this movie, reinforcing the fact that it's something that has really universal appeal. But as they're making their escape through the town, he picked up on something I never noticed before, which was they run over a fucking chicken. Like, you see the chicken go under the wheels, and... Connor's like, well, I guess they don't get to use no animals were harmed during the making of this movie in the credits. I watched the credits. That statement is not there. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that when the Kathleen Turner bridge swinging scene happened. My first thought was like, God, that shitty CGI. And then I was like, oh, no, that's real, dude. (laughs) Like That might be green screen. I was like, but there's no CGI. So if you saw a car hit a chicken, that car killed that chicken. Yes, it did. And the bridge scene you're talking about is called Lupe's Escape. What do you mean? It's what it's called in like the chapters? Oh, I don't know. 
I've never actually owned it on DVD, just in, in digital format. But no, that's what he calls it. It's Lupe's escape. When they're making their escape away from the military. And then later on, when she's driving the car and he's like, where are you going? She's like, I don't know. Lupe's escaped. And they drive into the river. God, I love talking to someone that's seen a movie 30 fucking times because <laughs> you can just point out shit to me that I missed. No fault of my own. You you miss stuff. You do. Oh, if sure. Researched on a film. You really know how every scene works. So this is great for me. No, I did not pick up on that at all. And I really tried to do a viewing now where I put my phone somewhere else in the room so I can't see it, so I can touch it and just really try to focus on the movie. I highly recommend it. I know it is hard nowadays, especially you've got kids and shit, man. You, you have to be in touch with your world. I don't. So I can kind of shut off for an hour and 40 minutes and really focus and write notes, which is what I did for this today. And that's the hard part for me when I know we're going to be doing the wrinkly sack is that not only am I taking notes, but I do it on my phone. I'm wanting to look up the actor's name so I can make a note of them so that I can make sure I get that right when we're talking about it, et cetera. And you're right. It's a little distracting. I do pen and paper. I do a lot of pausing. An hour and 40 minute movie normally takes me two hours to watch because I want to go back on shit. I want to look at shit. Like you said, I want to look up actors. And then when I start going down a wormhole on the trivia, it really uh, enriches the experience of viewing the film for me. This was a really good pick, Doug. You're making me want to kind of step up my game because you picked a movie that was really near and dear to you, kind of like I did with Friday the 13th Part 6. So I don't know what I'm going to pick next, but this was a good one. This was a great flick. I'm really glad you enjoyed it. I think I told you beforehand, it would shock me if you didn't like it more now than you did before. I dug it a lot. You want to keep going through the story. I think we're almost at the end, right? They end up at the fort. Yeah, we're getting to the climax. So they make it to this villa where they buy clothes, they screw, they dance, they eat. Danny DeVito has his best line in the movie where he's crawling underneath the table and the fat woman catches him and he's like, I lost my langostino. (laughs) DeVito's fucking great in this. and I remember him having like 40 lines and he's got like 12. He is the key to how the story plays out next because Danny knows that Joan and Jack are now going after El Corazon. But his brother Ira, who has Elaine, who they're trying to free, right? That she's the goal of the movie to free Elaine by delivering the map. Ira doesn't know that's the case. So they get a little closer in the city. They go and find the stone by following the clues. That's another gripe of mine is that I wish they would have drawn that out a little further because I, I thought the treasure hunt could have been a little more fulfilling. But that's just because I think personally it's an element I love so much in movies is watching the treasure hunt. But they find a, a stone which, oh my god, dude, in uh, in high definition, that stone looks fucking CGI, doesn't it? It did. And it was cool watching the movie in high def. I almost wanted to not watch it in high def because that's how obviously we, we saw it. You and I did not see a high definition version of this movie if we didn't see it in the theater. And even then we didn't, correct? Technically, 35 millimeter is high definition, but every transfer that we've gotten since then hasn't been. I did a little research on that and and they talk about like how the piece of green glass that they used was like so reflective that they had to light it properly so that it didn't show up weird on film but it still ended up showing up weird on film didn't have a problem with it i thought it looked pretty cool and they get the jewel and no sooner than that danny devito is there to take it from them he grabs it they chase him we get some more great dialogue one of my favorite scenes in the movie is uh okay so devito gets the jewel they get it back from him pretty quickly Joan and Jack are in the car trying to escape from the military that's chasing them down. They end up in a river in what is her failed version of Lupe's escape. And she's steering while the car is like being drugged down the river. And Jack Colton's like, what are you doing? Where are you going? (laughs) That's a great sequence. And it also ends up with them being separated at the end. And the dagger of mistrust is cast. That's really well done. I thought so, too. And Jack promises to meet her and she just has to take him at his word. So at this point, she's back in Cartagena and has made contact with Ira, the kidnapper. And he still doesn't know that she has the stone. So she agrees to meet him to hand over the map, which she does in this fort uh, at night in Cartagena with all of the fucking alligators running around. And another line that I love because I thought it was very well done by the actor is. 
Joan Wilder, you and your sister can go. You get the collective audience like, oh, they got away with it. No, no, they didn't. Because uh, DeVito has spilled his guts to the military and they know that El Corazon has ended up that like that they actually found it. And um, somehow they caught Jack Colton and all of the characters and everything come together at a head at this moment. Because fat, short DeVito can't run down a hill. So Carmen Sandiego gets him. (laughs) Right. To be fair, I'm short and fat and sometimes it's hard. So I've got DeVito's back on this one. But yeah, that's when everything comes to a head. Carmen Sandiego gets eaten by an alligator and Eric cheered because, God, I wanted to see some alligator carnage. I got a little bit, which is great. The alligator also gets the stone. We got one instance, like you called it the dagger of mistrust, where it's, is Jack going to show up? Well, yeah, he does end up showing up. Maybe not for the reasons why we assumed. Maybe not because he wanted to be there, but because did he get captured before he showed up at the hotel or was it afterwards? Is he there on his own intent or is he there because he didn't have a choice? And then uh, the showdown with, I guess we're just calling him Carmen Sandiego now. They defeat him. Not only does he get his hand bitten off, but he actually ends up as alligator food. And then it's like, all right, so we know this massive priceless jewel is in an alligator. Jack disappears because, you know, that's what Jacks do. But he tells Joan Wilder before he does so, you're going to be all right. We get the fade to black. And then we're back in New York City where Gloria is reading the book. Before we get to that, I just want to say that Michael Douglas holding the alligator by his tail through the side of the castle is fucking ridiculous. <laughs> Nikki made the same observation. She's like, don't those things weigh like 800 pounds? Like, <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> Nikki is much smarter than me. And I didn't even think about the poundage. It just didn't look right to me. And now I know why. So thank Nikki for that again, because there's no fucking way <laughs> that, that could happen, but it is a movie. But then yes, To your point, we get what I consider another best part of the movie is the misdirection. Because as a kid and in the theater, as soon as you cut to, is that Gloria? It is Gloria. And you know what? I I forgot to mention something, though. Uh, And this is a bit of trivia. Maybe you came across, too. The entire reason that Michael Douglas decided to act in this movie I know that he was the one that optioned the script, but the reason he decided to portray Jack Colton is because of that scene where he's climbing up the rock wall to try and get to Carmen Sandiego and Joan. He had developed rock climbing skills as a teenager, and when he saw that scene in the script, he's like, oh, I can rock climb? I'm in. And that was the scene that I remember being way more ridiculous when I was a kid. And it wasn't as ridiculous now. I remember it being akin to the old Batman 66, <laughs> you know, that kind of <laughs> cheese ass effect. But it didn't look horrible when I watched it this time. God, can you imagine picking a script off of that, though? That's how Star Trek five gets made, by the way. <laughs> so anyways, you were saying fade to black. We get great misdirection. And Doug, if there's one thing you know that I love, it is misdirection. Whether it's in joke telling or storytelling, I love to be fooled. And so your first thought when you flash to the author's office is, oh, this is the classic. The whole thing we've been watching has been Jane Wilder's book. What a bunch of bullshit, which fits with your shotgun theory. However, then we get a great Zemeckis-esque ending where Joan walks outside here pulls up a boat on the back of a truck. Michael Douglas, you see him. He lifts up his leg in a beautiful reveal of alligator boots. So you don't even have to figure out that he got the stone, everything. It says it all without saying anything. And they sail off down the streets of Manhattan into the sunset. And it is gorgeous. One thing I'll say about Zemeckis man is he knows how to end a movie back to the future Back to the Future 2, this, and 3, I would say all have great endings. This might be the best of the three, and I'm a huge Back to the Future fan, but the ending of Romancing the Stone is awesome. For exactly the reason that you described. They literally sail off into the sunset, but it's not in the way that you think. Just like their whole relationship and their expectations and what they come to appreciate about each other is not what they think. He is not the prototypical Jesse. She's not the prototypical damsel in distress. And when they sail off into the sunset, it's really on the back of a truck, not in water. And that's gorgeous. 
It's wonderful. And as soon as I got done with it, I was like, I'm going to go straight to Jewel of the Nile, which <laughs> I have never seen. And I still haven't because I didn't. I can't remember what I did. But it's because everyone, even at the time, and I want to say Jewel came out when we were in El Paso, too. Romancing the Stone came out in 84. Jewel of the Nile came out in 1985. How the fuck do you churn a sequel in a year? God, the fact that Turner, Douglas, and DeVito were all available, they were not waiting to get jobs in the 80s. No, and they didn't Shit, know. They're not that waiting the movie, to get jobs now. <laughs> you know? They didn't know it was going to perform that well. Everyone expected it to bomb. It ranked eighth in movies for gross in 1984, which is no small feat. Oh, fuck no, it's not. I would never have guessed that either with the list of movies that came out that year. I mean, to be fair, it was only 86 million, which in 2018 dollars is uh, 208 million. But you make yeah. 208 million in 2018, you're guaranteed a sequel. Yeah, you are. But I'm with you. How the fuck did they turn it around that quick? And maybe that has something to do with how shitty the quality I've heard Jewel of the Nile is. Now, you and Nils have both told me to watch it, that I'm not going to totally hate it. So I will. As an adult, you will like it. I did not like the sequel as a kid because I wanted more of the same thing that I got in the first movie. And it is completely different. And the letdown, once you realize it's not the same movie, that's all I could focus on as a kid. The adult movie going Doug has an appreciation for Jewel of the Nile because it is actually, in many ways, it's a better quality movie in terms of the story writing. The acting is on a, a whole other level. But because it wasn't an exact repeat of Romancing the Stone, a lot of people dismissed it. And then it didn't do well in the theaters. And it's the reason that there wasn't a third movie. And for part two, they even got Billy Ocean, the king of 80 soundtracks. In part one, you got Eddie Grant, whose song was barely even featured in the movie. He didn't even get the closing credits play, which is normally what the song gets. Everyone knows that song, even if they haven't seen the movie, right? When the going gets tough, is that what it's called? That's the Billy Ocean song, correct. And that music video at the time, I remember you and I definitely watched that on MTV over at my house. That was in heavy play because Turner, Douglas, and DeVito, I want to say, are all three in the video, not clips from the movie. No, they but filmed you can the actual call me Al music style. Video. Yeah, it was actually yep. the actors. They did. Which was very popular in the 80s. They did it with the Ghostbusters video. They did it with a lot of music videos. But yeah, actually having the actors in the video, it's at least Douglas and Turner. And I want to say DeVito's there too. My memories of it definitely include him, but I haven't seen the music video for that song in a long time. Well, get out of my dreams and get onto your YouTube app and watch it. <laughs> wow, that was fucking awful. And you better cut that. Here on Tap In Geek Out, we like to use the same shitty outro every week. You can follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. If you're a brewer that wants to come on the show, we would love to have you. We will make it work with the audio, whether we come see you or we do it over Skype. Any suggestions from our fans about episodes we want to do, or if there's a movie you want to see us do on the sack, please just hit us up. As always, my co-host, the editor extraordinaire, the only reason this fucking show happens, Doug Franklin Lund. I am Eric G. Hollis, and we are Tap In Geek Out.